0: Korach uh, is like famous it's a famous word it's a famous name in Jewish history Jewish tradition it's a symbol it's become much bigger than it is like many other um, it's kind of like you know well what popped into my mind was Hitler even though it's not Hitler but you know when you say Hitler it's much takes on much greater meaning than just the man who was Hitler uh, takes on all these associations ever since the, the Holocaust. Well, Korach in Jewish history has uh, has taken on uh, also a whole his- a sense of who, what Korach represented. Um, for example, Korach has become the symbol for all rebellions ever since, rebellions against authority um, that were. Um, petty, small-minded, self-serving. Uh, the Talmud, the Mishnah, famously, in Pirkei Avot, the, um, chapter 5 states, any dispute that is for the sake of heaven will endure, or will have a constructive outcome, you might translate. But one that is not for the sake of heaven will not endure. Um, because the rabbis, of course, The Talmud is 20 volumes of arguments, after all, and discussion, and somebody saying, no, 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 I think it's this, no, no, I think it's that, no, I think it's that. And one of the things that has distinguished Jewish literature, rabbinic literature, for thousands of years is the sense of respect and honor paid to argument and disagreement. You know, two Jews, three opinions, kind of uh, saying... um, although most cultures have the same thing, two, fill it in, three opinions, because everybody argues that's human nature. But in Jewish tradition, it's been sort of codified, sanctified, that you argue. You argue for the sake of heaven, is uh, lishem Shemaim, for the sake of, of heaven, is a sort of traditional Jewish phrase that in discussing and arguing and disagreeing, you come to more wisdom. You come to a greater sense of wisdom, a greater sense of resolution, rather than simply, you know, we're not like, uh, we don't have a pope I've often longed to be the pope but the Jewish pope but we, we don't have a pope so that you know the pope is infallible the pope says this that's the way it is okay the pope said so you know what are you the pope yeah you know the pope says and we follow Jews no no nobody rabbis it's like oh yeah that's yes, what well, you think I know better everybody knows better so um, you know rabbis have to be diplomats and uh, of course now I'm retired don't have to be a diplomat anymore but rabbis have to be you know Persuasive and diplomatic and all that other things to in order to influence people to go in a direction that they might think is the right direction. And that's sort of fundamental to Jewish life and certainly Jewish intellectual life always has been. Uh, in fact, one of the things that attracts people who grow up in some other religious traditions to Judaism is that they get to argue. They get to have a voice. They get to say, well, uh, I think I'm going to do it differently. And everybody goes, okay, do it that way then. You know, there isn't one right Way unless you 're in a particular fundamentalist version of Judaism, um, but for most of Judaism and for most of the history of Judaism, arguing, disagreeing you know is what we do uh, with great relish and joy um, so the this story today of this rebellion. Um, is seen in a whole different light than our tradition of arguing and disagreeing and going, you know, I think I'm, you're not right, I'm right. By the way, God says this, God meant that, you know, she really wants us to do this, whatever. However you do it. Korach, says the Talmud, is a, what sort of dispute they say is for the sake of heaven, Remember I started this little spiel with a quote from the Mishnah that says, any dispute that's for the sake of heaven will endure, and any dispute that's not for the sake of heaven will not endure. So then they say, okay, so what kind of dispute is for the sake of heaven is a good one that will endure, and they say the dispute between Hillel and Shammai. So as you know, most of you know, that throughout the Talmud, throughout rabbinic literature, there's a constant you know, arguing back and forth between Hillel and Shammai, who really represent schools, schools of thought, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai, and they argue back and forth, um, but of course, anybody who studies Talmud knows Hillel always wins, so it's kind of like but but that's I always love that I mean Hillel always wins, but Shammai's always there. you know it's not just okay, this is what Hillel said, so why listen to Shammai? Shammai's always there it's always the protagonist and the antagonist and you know, and Shammai's words are quoted as well. And in fact, there certainly are several times in rabbinic literature in the Talmud where uh, it says one of the one of the greatest things you can do is to pay homage to those who disagree with you. That is, that you hold up and continue the words. Of those who are not the majority, those whose whose uh, opinion doesn't carry, there's something uh, noble and um, and sacred even in Jewish tradition about continuing to share the opposition's words as well. Um, and uh, to me, there's uh, one of the reasons that that's always been a value in Jewish life is the same reason that Moses, who is you know, theoretically, the greatest Jewish leader of all time, what's, what was Moses' number one quality that's always been touted by rabbis and the commentators throughout history? What is it that Moses is most known for? Humility. Humility. Right? Humility. That's the Moses', here he is, the greatest leader of all time, the only guy who speaks panim el panim face to face with God, and yet the Torah says he was the humblest of all men. And, and that was his great quality, that he was humble. Um, obviously, there's a lesson about leadership there and about the importance of humility and not being arrogant. I won't say anything about Donald Trump, but about, you know, we're in that era. We're in whenever you're in a, in an election kind of year. Humility is a big issue because it's so rare. It, because, you know, people are running for office. They, they, by definition, need to be selling themselves to people and saying, look how great I am. Some go overboard, but it's still, you know. So, trying to balance humility and a sense of appropriateness. Part of the, I think, under the umbrella of humility, would fall this whole conversation that I'm. Well, it's actually a monologue that I'm now having um, about about uh, acknowledging and continuing to to communicate the um, both sides of an argument and of a disagreement. It keeps you humble. It's not just okay. I'm right. Period. I'm right, but your opinion, which is so and so and so and so and so and so, is also important to listen to and to acknowledge. You know, and I think as a people, the idea is to create a sense of humility and a sense of that, you know, we do the best we can, we make the best decisions we can, but even when you're following my way, it may not, still might not be right. It's just that, okay, my way seemed to carry the day or your way seemed to carry the day. But nobody has ultimate wisdom. And so, you know, and that's always important. This Korah story today is A, a threat against Moses' leadership, the, the, the most dramatic threat against Moses' leadership, and then of course, because Moses wins, um, and Aaron wins, it's really dramatic how they win. Um, because, you know, God shows up and goes, <clears throat> and zaps everybody. Uh, well, actually, the earth opens up and swallows everybody. That's the first thing. And 14,000 people end up dying. So it's like not a little thing. It's like a big thing. But the other thing is that, so, you know, the the Talmud, the rabbis say, that argument between the discussion, the disagreement between Hillel and Shammai, that's a good symbolic argument. And the one that's not, that'll never, that shouldn't endure, is Korach and his entire company. So, it, the, the, the Mishnah says that it's a couple thousand years ago when it was written, and ever since, that's how I started, I could have done it in one sentence and stopped talking, but I'm a rabbi, don't do that. So, you know, Korach became the symbol of, of, um, of a rebellion for all the wrong reasons. Not just a disagreement, but a rebellion against legitimate authority a rebellion that according to all of the re- uh, traditional commentators was all about um, ego and self self-aggrandizement um, and really not about not for the sake of the community which ultimately is the the measure of a healthy versus an unhealthy argument or a disagreement uh sacred versus an um, a profane you might say argument or disagreement in Jewish life is whether it's uh, for the sake of the betterment of the community as a whole, as opposed to just myself, who, I who am arguing, so my, uh, my own self-aggrandizement. And because, remember, fundamentally Judaism, Jewish civilization, is a communitarian religious civilization. It's not about I, it's about we. We stand up on high holidays, we go for the sins we have sinned when we stand up and and confess things. It's not about me, even individually. It's about the community. For good and for bad, it's about the community. The whole... Um, One of the points, I think, of the Torah is the building of and creating of community to recognize that we are connected, we are interconnected, we are inevitably connected, we are forever connected, and you can't disconnect yourself from community. Um, And what's for the betterment of the community is sort of what our challenge is. So, having said all of that, um, frighteningly, I'm actually going to turn to the Torah itself which is rare for me because I like to just talk. But um, so uh, in the beginning, this is, as I said, um, this whole story fundamentally revolves around rebellion or really a series of rebellions. And when you pick this Torah portion apart, it seems to be at least two or maybe three different rebellions that are sort of woven together. A rebellion against Moses, a rebellion against Aaron. A rebellion that 's with the Levites, a rebellion that 's with the chieftains, the head of the tribes it 's a little conflated and mixed up, and maybe several stories that are actually woven together because sometimes that 's what happens apparently <clears throat> in the Torah um, by the time it was eventually written down either way it 's definitely a rebellion against Moses and his leadership, and it 's definitely a rebellion against Aaron and his leadership um, so the very beginning i 'll read because I have the mic. Now Korach, son of Ishar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, betook himself along with Datan and Abiram, sons of Eliab and On, son of Peleth, descendants of Reuben, to rise up against Moses, together with 250 representatives of the Israelites, chieftains of the community, chosen in the assembly with fine reputations. Anshe Shem is that wonderful Hebrew phrase. Uh, people of a name, people of repute. If you have a good name, I love this phrase, "Anshe Em Shem." People have a who have a name, who made a name for themselves. You know, um, the Talmud asks, you know, what's the best quality you can have? And one of the answers is a Shem Tov, a good name, because of course that's your reputation. Talking about your reputation, you can have lots of stuff, but you know. Other than people being jealous because your house is bigger or your car is newer, you have a Tesla, which a friend of mine calls the Prius of the Palisades. Um, uh, Ultimately, it's your character that matters. It's what people say about you when you're not around that matters. That's your name, you know. Um, And every time we do baby namings, I have one on Sunday. Every time we do baby namings, one of the things I always quote is a midrash that you know talks about. Here's a baby, and all the potential that's there in this little baby. You have no idea what she's going to say or what she's going to do. But your dream as a parent is that she becomes a, you know, an Isha or an isha hashem, a, someone whose name, whose reputation, becomes something of pride to her, to him, and then to the family and the rest of the world. That's what you want, you know, and that's a reflection of your character. So allegedly, here we have. Korach and we get a little genealogy of Korach son of this person son of Levi why oh thank you why um, why why do this Korach identified as the grandson so to speak of Levi do you think gives him a name gives him a name well he's rebelling against his own family because he's a, yeah, Levite, he's a Levite. Because they're all part of the same family. It's a, it's a family dispute. And it's like, wait a minute, how come you're so hot? I'm in the same family. Not only am I a, an important person, but I'm in the same family. What makes you better than me? It's kind of what he's saying. Now, what's interesting is, that one of the, the, uh, commentators, traditional commentators, asks the question, so, if Korah's giving his, or someone is giving his, His genealogy, why stop at Levi? Levi was, in theory, a son of Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob gets his name changed to Israel. Remember, 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes. That's the way it's supposed to work in the Torah. And so you'd think, if you're going to say what your genealogy is, you go back to, you know, the most important, who is one of the patriarchs. So to identify Korach as a son of Jacob or the son of Israel gives you a little more clout. Well, in fact, in uh, Numbers Rabbah, which is a a collection of Midrash, a rabbinic commentary on the book of Numbers, which this is from, uh, there's a quotation that quotes Jacob on his deathbed. Jacob slash Israel on his deathbed, saying, If any of my descendants turn out to be wicked, may my name not be associated with them, because such a person is not worthy of being called an Israelite or a Bnei Yisrael, a child of Israel. So because of that, they left off Jacob, says the Midrash, because Jacob was embarrassed already because eventually Korach was one of his descendants. You know how that is. Sometimes your kids embarrass you. Well, parents always embarrass you, but sometimes your kids embarrass you too, or maybe even your grandkids. so in this case. But the point of this, really, in, from, from the tourist perspective, is to set up who they are, that they're, they're not just, you know anybody there and that's the same thing with the next page, 250 representatives of the Israelites, chieftains of the community, heads of tribes. These are the elite. This is not a rabble-rousing little group. This is people of reputation, of repute. And even they are rebelling, which makes, of course, this, that's why this is the most powerful and dangerous rebellion against Moses. Because it's not just the people rumbling, because after all, you got 40 years of everybody rumbling. Oh, by the way, let me set this in the right context. What just happened last week? Well, in 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 Torah time, what just happened last week was the spies. Remember the spies story? The twelve spies, one from each tribe. They they get to Israel after all. They got to the promised land very quickly. You know, not forty years. Here we are. Surprise! So then Moses sends in this twelve spies. These twelve representatives. They go in. They come back. What happens? People don't accept it. Ten of them say, oh my God, there are giants living there, right? Ten of them say, we were like grasshoppers in their eyes. Two of them, you know, Joshua and Caleb say, no, 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 don't listen to them. We can do it. Let's just go in, you know. We just had miracle after miracle after all. We just got freed from Egypt, the most powerful army in the world. Now you're worried about going into, you know, the land of Canaan with some local farmers or whoever happens to be there? What are you talking about? If God could do this for us, certainly God could do that for us. But obviously, the vast majority—ten out of twelve—said can't do it. Ten out of twelve taught the powerful lesson that attitude is everything. You know, or whoever it was, Abraham Lincoln, or somebody who said, "If you think you can, or you think you can't, you're right." Someone once said that. Um, but that's actually, I think, it was Henry Ford. Oh yeah, I think it was Henry Ford. You're right. And he was right. Um, you know, just because he was an anti-Semite doesn't mean he wasn't smart. Okay, so people have all kinds of prejudices. They're still smart. In any event, um, uh, so after they just got, and then what was the resolution of that little drama last week? Ten came back. They said, no, we can't do it. Everybody freaked out. And said to Moses, "Oh my God, you let us in the wilderness to die," which they've said about twenty times in the Torah. "Oh my God, you let us in the wilderness to die. We're not going to do. We can't do it." And they a little murmuring rebellion. They are not willing to go in. They lose any sense of faith in themselves, in Moses, in the leadership, in God, in whatever in this story. And so, because of that, God says, "You're not going to go in. Turn around. Keep walking." Because of that, it's forty years of wandering. Because of that, they just all got a death sentence, right? Because of that, God said, "Oh, you guys, you don't get to go in. In fact, I'm going to. You have to turn around and mark until you all die out, and your kids will get to go in. The next generation will get to go in. Although the midrash says the women got to go in because the women kept faith, and only the men died out. But that's for Amy to talk about, not me. So, um, in any event, that's uh, the, so they just—they're probably not in the best mood. They just got told, oh, I'm sorry, 40 years, turn around, you gotta walk into the desert, this scary wilderness, that's it. Forever. Until you die. It's like, oh, thanks. This is the, so it's not surprising, in a sense, that they turn to Moses and go, that's my leader? This is what happens, you're my leader, and look what happens, now I gotta like, Schlup around in the desert for the next 40 years, 38 years, until I die. So, that's sort of the background of this rebellion. They're all freaking out anyway. You know, they're losing faith, they're freaking out, they're, they want to take over, uh, and as happens periodically in the Torah tale of their wandering, this one's like one of the worst versions of, uh, selective memory. Right? Where? Where is it? Where is it? I got it. Because... Uh, here we go. Skip over to verse 12. Keep going. Moses sent for Datan and Abiram. I'll get those back again. Sons of Eliab, But they said, we won't come. That's about the biggest rebellion you could do. They refused Moses. Is it not enough that you brought us from a land flowing with milk and honey? It's a like great... I love this part. You brought us from a land flowing with milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness? Now you want to lord it over us also? Even if you had brought us to a land flowing with milk and honey and given us possession of fields and vineyards, should you gouge out those subordinates' eyes, we'll not come. Whatever. I done. So, on top of everything else in their selective memory, suddenly Egypt becomes the land of milk and honey. You know, it's the... It's exactly what demagogues do. Take everyone's phrase and turn it on its head and use it against them. Take your hopes and your dreams, turn it for their own uses. Lie. It's called lying. That Brexit thing that just happened, right? The biggest, one of the biggest selling points they kept hammering over and over again, is we're going to get all those hundreds of millions of dollars that we have to give to the European Union. It's going to come. Now we're going to get it immediately. And the minute, the day the vote, after the vote happened, those same people said, oops, I guess we were mistaken. <laughs> That's called lying. A lot of it's going on right now <clears throat> in our political thing. Just bold face lying in order to make a point. So, And here it is. That's our... You took us away from our land flowing and looking at any. We should make Egypt great again. Okay, so i got to stop that. Um, In any event, that's, you know, it's one of the greatest um, tragedies of what happens when things aren't going well is all of a sudden, and here it's throughout the the 40 years of wandering, they're constantly looking... Remember those good old days in Egypt when we got to eat so well? They were slaves in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. They didn't get to eat well. They didn't get to live well. They didn't get to do anything well. I mean, they got to do whatever their master said, period. Slavery. You know, the whole fundamental identity of the Jewish people is we were slaves and we went free. That's our whole identity. It's carrying this slavery around with us for thousands of years. It doesn't go away. Doesn't go away. You know, look at what's been happening in the last two days yes. in America. You know, the whole Black Lives Matter issue. Slavery doesn't go away when you continue to be abused and singled out. You know, I thought the president was eloquent yesterday, but I mean, look what's going on. You know, it's like a, it's a war going on and particularly young black men, are singled out and killed and imprisoned more than anybody else in the country. It's like, it's not an accident. It's not, oh, it just happens to be that way. It's the continuation of slavery, frankly, and the mentality of us and them, you know, and people's fears. Uh, and, And this is the Jewish experience. This is what we carry with us. This is why we're constantly... Told to remember we were slaves in Egypt so that we can be agents wherever we are in the world of liberation for everybody, regardless of race, regardless of religion, regardless of whatever. That's the whole point. That's like, that's why this is our sacred literature because it's we were, and that's why the whole story is slavery. And look how quickly we forget. Look at this. They just got freed three minutes ago and all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, I wanted to long for those good old days when I didn't have to think. At least someone was taking care of me. I might have been a slave, but at least someone was taking care of me. You know, now I'm out here on my own. Oh my God, what's going to happen? You know, that's... The wilderness also is not just a physical place. The wilderness in Jewish life and in Torah is a metaphor for life. There's a reason we're wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. And not, you know, we're in some city somewhere waiting for God's call. And that it's not like Harry Potter or Star Trek. Yeah, beam me up, you know, boom. You know, if God could do anything, (coughs) split the sea, do all these marvelous things, you know, then why didn't God just go, whatever, and suddenly all the Israelites were in Israel? Right? Because that's not what the story's about. The story's about real people in real lives in this context. It's about the metaphor of how many of us wander in our lives through our own wildernesses looking for the promised land. You know, and where's the promised land? And, and what makes it the promised land? And how do you know when you're there? Because someone says, oh, you're there. You know, what stage of your life are you at the promised land? Everybody's always looking for the next stage. Now I'm uh, the emeritus. What does that mean? I don't know. I'm trying to figure it out. But you know, it's like, for the next stage, wow, I made it to this stage. It's kind of like you breathe, and go, oh, made it safely to here, now to there. Now what? You know, in every stage of our lives, the worst year of my life, was when I was 20 I hated being 20 because I felt like I was no place Like I I mean I was in college, I was somewhere but it was like you know when I was 19 I was a teenager you had a good identity, you're a teenager when you're 21, at the time you're an adult, you're somebody 20, what's that? You're like nowhere you're in between, you're like, it's 20 I remember I was so depressed, I was writing songs about being, how depressed I was and everything else because, you know, who who are you? This is a search for identity. The Torah has many ways a search for identity, of personal identity in relationship to community, right? So, back to the text. So here's this rebellion. They combined against Moses and Aaron, and back to reading, and said to them, you've gone too far, for all the community are holy, all of them, and Adonai is in their midst. Why then do you raise yourselves above Adonai's congregation? on the surface that seems like not an unreasonable Something comment from a democracy that sounds wonderful right right why why are you raising yourself everybody's holy H- how can they say everybody's holy because we're called in the torah a mamlechet kohanim v'goi kadosh a kingdom of priests and a holy people that's the phrase that's used about all of us we're all of these people all these Is- israelites are and who are the Israelites here, by the way? I keep saying Israelites because that's what they're called, Bnei Yisrael. Who are these people? They're former slaves. Are they all like the children of Jacob and all those 12 tribes? Is that who they all are? They're not. They are whoever the hell wanted to come along with them, right? I mean, clearly it says in the Torah, it was a an of Rav, a mixed multitude. It wasn't just some pure you know, biological, genealogical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and those 12 sons of his from several hundred years before when they were slaves. It was open season on freedom, and literally whoever came along, whoever wanted to get out of Egypt, whoever they were, became, quote, the children of Israel. They were the people who stood the Sinai and said, yes, we'll do it, yes, we accept the Ten Commandments, yes, whatever. That became the community. The community was always an interfaith, if you will, and then to use modern language, a mixed community. Doesn't say what they were the same race, doesn't say they were the same religion, they were just whoever wanted, freedom was the one thing they had in common, wanted to get out of Egypt. And they were willing to follow Moses, off into the unknown, into the wilderness, into, I don't know, let's figure, we'll figure it out, but we'll do it together. You know, and that's not, that's why there's so much rebellion going on. They weren't a cohesive group, it wasn't just, you know, Everybody on the same page ever. They were. It was information. It was community information. It was society information, in a rather harsh and crazy, weird setting in the middle of nowhere. Actually, in this miraculous setting, there was this forty years of, according to the Torah, of course, they didn't have to work for their food. They didn't get to shop ever because their clothes didn't wear out. Their shoes didn't wear out. You know, no shopping opportunities. No malls and the out in the Sinai Desert. There may be malls in the Sinai Desert now, I don't know, but they weren't then. Um, It was this mixed multitude of people. And yet, that's the group who was called, just like everybody in this room, wherever you came from, whatever your backgrounds are, wherever you grew up, whatever, that's the group. That's the group that then was called a kingdom of priests and a holy people. And because they were willing to be a part of the community. So they're saying, wait a minute, we're all holy. If we're all holy, what makes you holier than us? The holier-than-thou thing. So it seems reasonable. When Moses heard this, Moses fell on his face. What does that mean? The Yipolol He fell on his face. Like, what? It's either like, can't believe it? I just love this hat? Can't believe it? Or don't you think it's weird that a Panama hat is made in Ecuador? <laughs> Genuine Panama, handwoven in Ecuador. I don't get that anyway. One of the great contradictions of life: all Panama hats are actually made in Ecuador. Should be called Ecuador hats. Okay, so that's the way life goes. Life's filled with contradictions. <laughs> so f- "fell on his face" is a is a uh, biblical phrase that generally means. Um, a uh, symbol of prayer, praying. Fell on his face means, like, fell on his face praying to God. Going, help me, or, what's going on, or, or I didn't do it. <laughs> which is part of what he says. He fell on his face. In, also, it's a symbol of humility. Which is part of what prayer is about. Prayer itself is an act of humility. Because if you're arrogant, we you have to pray, you know. People should pray to you. Right? <sighs> needs to pray. Every act of prayer is an act of humility. It's saying there's something bigger than you in the universe, or there's powers beyond you in the universe that you need to uh, appeal to or look to, that everything, you can't do everything. And so you pray. Pray for strength, pray for healing, pray for all the things that we pray for spontaneously and otherwise in our lives, whether with, you know, with formal prayer books or prayers of the heart. Every one of those, every time we do that, it's literally an act of humility of saying, "I, I, I don't know, I don't have all the answers, and I'm not quite sure I can handle everything, so give me strength, wherever strength comes from, courage, compassion, all the things that we ask for in life. So here Moses, who just got attacked by this large group, 250 representatives, it's not just one guy who gets up and goes, hey, who are you? You know, 250 representatives of the chieftains, of the Levites, of the heads of everything are now rebelling against him. And because he's humble, he fell on his face. Then he spoke to Korach and all his company saying, OK, he falls on his face. and He thinks, come morning, God will make known who is God's, who is holy and will grant him assuming it's a man evidently direct access the one whom God has chosen will be granted access do this you Korah, and all your hand band take fire pans tomorrow put fire in them lay incense on them before God then the candidate whom God chooses he shall be the holy one you've gone too far sons of Levi which is um, Moses accusing them of the same thing they just accused him of they just said to Moses you've gone too far he just said no no you've gone too far You've gone too far. So interesting. <clears throat> Moses throws out this challenge. He says Is this the Levites rebelling against. Yes, and yes. It it's false? we. It's, it's It doesn't. At the moment, it looks like they combined against Moses and Aaron, and said, "Who are you guys? You guys, plural, to assume that you're better than us. Everybody's holy. You know, you've gone too far." So at the moment it's they're all they appear to be rebelling against both Moses and Aaron, who after all are brothers. They're, you know, they're the brothers who hold all the power the political power and the religious power, so to speak, together, Aaron being the high priest, Moses being the sort of political leader, so to speak, of of the people. And they say, You've gone too far, and so Moses says, All right, here's we'll have a test tomorrow. You come put incense in your fire pans, and we'll see what God God'll choose, whoever. Now, in theory, Moses fell on his face, prayed to God for strength, advice, and that's what he came up with. This is what he came up with after falling on his face, after theoretically you know, going, okay, what do I do? Okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. Now, what's interesting is there's a wonderful midrash that says um, that, um, you know, remember they had, how did they eat in the wilderness? Mana. Mana. Every day, mana fell, right? And they didn't have to go out and work for it. Where is that cool midrash? Oh yeah, here it is. I love this. So, so there's a midrash that says, um, ask, why did Moses wait till tomorrow? Why didn't he just write on the spot say, hey, I'll show you. God, show him. You know, cause God's gonna show him really dramatically. Why tomorrow? God has to wait? God's like working in God's workshop or something to get the right kind of finder bolt or something. So, so they, the midrash says, why did he wait? Why didn't Moses say, "Yeah, you want to seek? I'll show you." Because that when the manna would fall on the children of Israel, it fell on the doorsteps of the righteous people, and the least, the less righteous you were, the farther away from you it fell. So you'd have to actually work and go get it. So, that evil people had to travel a great distance and had difficulty in collecting it. It was one of the ways of God showing them they needed to, like, get their act together. and uh, You know, or it was, if you were, the, the better you were, the more righteous you were, you'd open up your door, or your tent, I guess. You didn't have a door. You'd open up your tent, oh, there it would be, right next to you, the door. It was like special delivery for those who were, you know, and otherwise it was wish that happened these days. Mm-hmm. Yes, right. <clears throat> so, therefore, Moses said, in the morning, when the mana falls, God will show you who's righteous and who isn't, because everyone will see how far away from Korach and all these people the is going to fall, and they'll automatically know that uh, God isn't in, in favor of them. Yes, ma'am. Nowadays, we're always thinking that... Um People, bad people aren't getting their comeuppance but, and, and we're told well it will happen when they die but. some people tell you that yeah, <laughs> yeah well you know <clears throat> um, that's one of the things that makes some of these stories so satisfying yes. to some that is the bad get punished the good get rewarded wouldn't that be nice doesn't always happen, though, no. that the bad get punished and the good get rewarded. And in fact, in life, it ain't the way it works in life. You know, that's why there's a whole philosophy system, theology system called theodicy, which wrestles with the question of why do the good suffer? And the flip side, why do the bad not suffer necessarily? And yes, of course... It's logical, given the reality of our lives, that it's not always that, you know, that the good get rewarded and the bad get punished. (coughs) Clearly, it's not that way. Therefore, one of the responses that traditional religious systems have is, you know, there'll be pie in the sky by and by. So to speak. So, you know, you'll get rewarded afterwards because, you know, you can't know God's will because you're only human and therefore ultimately there'll be some kind of reward for those who deserve it and some kind of punishment for those who don't. Which may work for some people. You know, and then there's just the reality of what life is the way it is. Life's the way it is. And there's certain things you don't get to vote on. And there's plenty of people who are bad people who, you know, great drug dealers and great whatever and mafia people and great uh, drug lords and they live in great palaces and have all these servants and their own private planes and everything else and, Th- some good people have to crawl and there's lots Get of good people and there's, and there's lots of good people that have to crawl through the and fight their way and living in hovels and kids who grow up in horrible circumstances and yeah who didn't do anything mm-hmm. right That that's that is the reality of the world So, but on the other hand, you know, is it the case that that the real rewards of life are that you get your own private plane? And and is it true that people who have the most wealth are the happiest in life? And that people who have the most stuff are happiest in life. It's nice to have stuff. I have lots of stuff. I like stuff. But it's clearly the case that those aren't the happiest people in the world. They just have the most stuff. And when you look at all the studies of happiness on countries, it's also, you know, the United States, which is a, still, I suppose, the richest country in the world, is way down on the happiness scale of how, of countries that are happy. People in general, populations are happy. You know, satisfaction, fulfillment comes not from stuff. After you've satisfied your basic, you gotta have basic shelter and food and, you know, and, but everybody wants this really love. What everybody really wants is to feel that they matter, which has nothing to do with how much stuff they have, you know. And the, so that's part of why we do this. It's part of why we do this. Part of why I show up at Torah studies and go to services or do whatever is to sort of figure out how to have life work for us. And what, what does that mean? What does it mean that we have we're successful as human beings in life. What does it mean that we get, what's the rewards of life? What are the rewards? You know, well, there's not just one. There's lots of different rewards. And and everybody can look to somebody else. It's the grass is always greener thing, you know, and and think, oh, that person, he's really got it because he's got this, that, and the other. She's really got it because she's got this, that, and the other. You know, and it's a human nature to do that. To be going, eh, looking over there and only saying, that's a pretty sweater you got there. So you must be like, eh, right? You know, that's why I love that Hasidic story about the guy with the beautiful coat who everybody envies and goes from town to town. And his coat's so beautiful that everywhere he goes, people like invite him into his their house and they feed him and because he's got this magnificent coat. But what they don't see is that the lining is all torn and shredded and disgusting because he always keeps it like this so he can look great. But he walks around with torn lining because you don't see the torn lining of people's lives. You only see the, the coat. Because people don't show you the torn lining. Unless you're a rabbi and they come into your office and they close the door and then, then you get to see some of the torn linings of people's lives. You know, and realize what really matters. It's not the coat. You know, it's the longing for people. Yeah. Also, people don't want to see the torn linings of other
1: people's coats. Well,
0: that's true. I I agree with you. Mostly they don't, although sometimes they like to see the torn linings of really important people (laughs) or really rich people. They kind of like it when they fall, when they stumble, when they, they, oh, so they're like Moses. That's what's going on here. Ah, you're not so great. You look like you're so great. You may act like you're not that great. Mm -hmm. You're not that better than me. Because guess what? They're not any better than you. I mean, you know, some people are smarter, You know, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I'm smart enough. There's plenty of people smarter than me. See? I can't even speak English right. Plenty of people smarter than I am. So, whatever. So, and richer and whatever. And if that's how you measure your own success, then you're always going to be unhappy. This person's prettier than I am. This person's like richer than I am. This person's got more stuff than I am. This person's got more kids. This person's got better kids. This person's got grandkids. I don't have any. There's a million ways you can compare yourself to other people and come up short. If that's how you determine your own value in life. You're screwed if you do that. Because you're always going to be less than in every category somebody. 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 Like, who's the richest person in the world? I don't know. Anybody know who the richest person in the world today? Who knows? But whoever you are, no matter how many billions you have, someone's got more billions, right? Imagine how frustrating the billionaires must be if that's how they measure. They got billions, and ah, that guy's got one more billion than I do. You know? I mean, I mean literally, that's how people are, right? How much is enough? The 10th Commandment. Yes, exactly. I think that's why I think the 10th Commandment is like, Probably the most important commandment of all about coveting others because it's the determiner of your sense of, of fulfillment and satisfaction in life. Cause er, you're, you're dead if you're comparing yourself, if that's how you measure success. And that's part of this struggle. And that's part of what's going on here, which we may get to, or we may not, but cause it's me, you probably, you're were, you were quoting. Never you will. Okay, a vote? Yes. Uh, Benzoma says, who is rich? Yes. The person who is satisfied with what he or she has. Exactly. That's, you know, that's what wealth is. Gratitude. Exactly. Exactly. That's why gratitude is so powerful. Gratitude is like, if you have, if you're going to just pick one thing to focus on in your own private meditations, one thing to have is your own mantra, figure out a gratitude mantra because that sets everything else in, in, in context. When you can remember that you woke up. Is core of Jewish prayer? Fundamentally, it's about gratitude. You know, that's why we start the day going, ah, "Thank you, God, I woke up." You know, "Thank you, God, I woke up, got my soul back." Ah. and then oh, got a body and it works <laughs> mostly. You know. Dee Dee fell the other day on the 4th of July. She was hurrying to the parade because I was, of course, marching and playing drums in the parade. So she was hurrying and looking at the parade and not looking down. Went flying and smashed her foot and cut it open and her hands and whatever. Fortunately, nothing broke, but she's wearing a boot and hobbling now because like she really trashed her. Foot and it was bleeding and pouring out blood and whatever for days. So I finally got her to the doctor two days later. But you know, and she's flying off to New York today. So you know, it's like she's in constant pain. It'll it'll get better eventually, but in the meantime, her whole life's about her toe and her foot and whatever. Because we forget about all these things that work until they don't work. You know, we don't. I don't pay any attention to the fact I can do this until I can't. You know, and that is what all of these, ultimately the rebellions of life, are about people forgetting about gratitude. Forgetting to be... That's how the ridiculousness of this Korach thing is, exactly why it's described this way. These are people who have everything. They're the people of repute. They are the chieftains of the tribes. They are the people everybody looks up to. And they're the ones complaining and kvetching. Instead of going, lucky I am. You know, I'm the, I'm somebody other people look up to. Instead of, wait a minute, there's somebody higher than me. Well, how come you're up there? You know? It's like, it's part of human nature. Because it's part of human nature, that's why we have all these stories to remind us to like pop our own bubble and come back down and go, okay, let's remember what really matters in life. Which, yeah, Margo. I was thinking when you were talking about um, wanting what somebody else yeah. has, it reminds me of this personal parable that kind of uh, mm-hmm. relates to this, what you were saying. And when my son Gary was about 8 or 10 years old, he wanted a five-speed bike. Mm-hmm. And we finally bought him uh, or got him one and he said to me after he had it he said you know what it's more fun wanting it than and having it. and this is from a child and i just that was wise Why? Well, that was a wise statement yeah. so i i just was yes it's always like, more fun wanting than getting. getting it's like uh birthdays christmas kind of people open up all these presents and then it's like Okay, yeah. you know, where's the box I can play in instead? And as I can say, everybody gets bored with whatever they got three seconds later. It's about the longing for and the wanting of the, it. it's like, well, it's like, people, everybody tells you that. With every challenge they have, it's the getting there, it's the journey. Oh, it's the journey. Hello? 40 years of wandering. It's the journey. That's the whole wilderness. That's the whole point of the metaphor of the wilderness. It's the journey. Life is the journey. It's not the destination. They never get there. They got there and they, there, that was the whole thing of There'd be no Torah if they, if, if all ten of them had said, great, here we are. <laughs> Done. It's like, okay. Then they would have no, they wouldn't have learned a thing. It's like, okay, here we go. Right? So instead we get all these other books and all of this drama and 40 years of all the, and all the other stuff going on. Otherwise there's no story. Because life is the journey. It's not getting there getting there is dying <laughs> that's what getting there in life is it's the end of your life I wouldn't rush into the end you know if you can help it you know you want to get there as long as late as you can as healthy as you can that's what you, and it's the journey along the way always that's why this the whole torah and is, the is really about the journey. And that's why we do what we do, which is we read the Torah scroll and we turn the Torah scroll and we get through the whole thing and we get to the very end of the Torah and what do we do? We, the same day we start it again. Back to Genesis. Because we never get there. Because they never get there. I mean they get there. But you know, later. But in the Torah they don't, the five books of the month, they get to the very end of Deuteronomy, they're you know, they're standing there about to go into the land. That's no fun. Okay. And then, then I just like drudgery after that. Then they got to work. Then they got to tell, and they got to this, and they got to that. And better to have the drama of the whole story, which is what, really what this is kind of all about. Now, by the way, uh, <clears throat> when they combine against Moses and Aaron and say to them, "You've gone too far," for all the community are holy. The commentators say. Therein, even in that phrase itself, all the community are holy, lies the proof that in fact this is really about their personal arrogance. Um, Because all the community are holy, every one of them, is instead of a singular all the community is holy. All the community are holy says uh, one of the brilliant uh, 20th century commentators, Nechama Lebowitz, she said, this shows that it's really about every individual thinking he or she is holy. When Judaism's not about that, it's about community. And so it was about Korach, Dotan, Abiram, these people saying, what makes you better than me? As if it's about me. Or about you, instead of about us. And th- this was a the best symbol and clue to really what was motivating this whole rebellion. Even though yes, they were afraid and they just got told they were going to be dying out in the wilderness. It was about personal their themselves, their own selfish ambitions. And when you allow your selfish ambition to take over, it. The end is inevitably not going to be good, and it's certainly not going to be in the best interest of the community. So, um, five more minutes. The um, <coughs> excuse me. So <coughs> we'll read some more. Moses said further to Korah, because at least we should let them all disappear. Hear me, sons of Levi. Is it not enough for you that God of Israel has set you apart? from the community of Israel and giving you direct access to perform the duties of God's tabernacle to minister to the community and serve them, right, because these are now, now he's talking to the Levites because they're all part of that family. They have the special relationship. they got the special jobs dealing with the tabernacle, with the Mishkan, dealing with all the sacred things in the tabernacle. Now that God has advanced you and all your fellow Levites with you, you, now you want to be the priests as well. That's not enough. You want to be the bosses. Everybody wants to be the boss and tell you're the boss. Then it's a whole different story. Truly, it's against God that you and your company have banded together. Then Moses says, it's not about me now. Now it's about your place in life and how life is all about and your own privileges. Even that isn't enough for you. For who is Aaron that you should rail against him? <clears throat> Moses sent for Ferdot and Abiram. We read this before. and They said, this is their rebellion. They wouldn't even come. Uh... Moses, I'm skipping down, Moses was much aggrieved, and he said to God, "Pain in regard to their ablation, I have not taken the ass of any one of them, nor have I wronged any one of them. Because they're attacking Moses, so Moses suddenly turns to God and goes, Don't listen to them. I haven't done anything wrong, as far as I can tell. I certainly haven't taken anything from them. I'm not trying to be greater than them. I'm just doing what you told me to do. So, Moses says to Korach, Tomorrow you and all your company appear before God, you and they and Aaron, each of you take your firepan. This is a repeat. Lay incense, if you bring his firepan, 250 firepans, Aaron will bring your firepans. Each of them took their firepan, put fire in it, laid incense on it, took their place, the entrance of the tent of meeting. Korach gathered the whole community against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting. This is why 14,000 people end up getting killed. Because Korach, this demagogue was able to get all of these people to stand with him. Even though they didn't do anything, they didn't distance themselves either. So, then Kavod Adonai, the presence of God, appeared to the whole community, and God spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Stand back from this community, that I may annihilate them in an instant. Every once in a while, God wants to wipe everybody out, But Moses, and Moses and Aaron always stand up and say, don't do it. You know, Moses always intervenes. In the midst of this rebellion, Moses stands up still and says, don't do it. But see, they fell on their faces. This is the plea, prayer to God, and said, oh God, source of the breath of all flesh, when one member sins, will you be wrathful of the whole community? This is an echo of Abraham standing up for Sodom and Gomorrah and saying, just because there's some people who are evil, are you're going to wipe all the good people out with the bad. Moses again says the same thing. Just cause someone is rebellious, you're going to kill everybody. You're going to wipe out everybody. And, uh, so what is God's response? Speak to the community and say, withdraw from the abodes of Korach, Datan, and Abiram. Okay. Show me that you're not with them. Withdraw. So Moses went up and went to Daltan Abiram. He addressed the community and said, Move away from the tents of these wicked fellows. Touch nothing that belongs to them, lest you be wiped out for all their sins. So they withdrew from about the abodes of Korah Daltan Abiram. But according to the rabbis, 14,000 of them didn't. And that's why those people ended up dying. So they came out, they stood at the entrance of their tents with their wives, their children, and their little ones. This is enough to break your heart. And Moses said, By this you shall know that it is God who sent me to do all these things. They're not my own devising. If these people's death is that of all humankind, meaning if they just die naturally, then if there are a lot of humankind's common fate, then it wasn't God who sent me. But if God brings about something unheard of so that the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up, And all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol. You shall know these fellows have spurned God. Scarcely had he finished speaking all these words when the ground under them burst asunder. Good timing for an earthquake. The earth opened its mouth, swallowed them up with their households, all Korach's people, all their possessions. They went down alive into Sheol, but all that belonged to them. The earth closed over them, and they vanished from the midst of the congregation, all Israel around them naturally fled at their shrieks, for they said the earth might swallow us. And then a fire went forth from God and consumed the 250 representatives of the congregation, and on and on. So some have said and have asked, why the women and children too? What did they do? How come they all got swallowed up? How come not just... Abiram, and Korach. And there's 250. Why is that? And then we're going to close. Why is that? Hmm? Well, the answer is that this is the way the world really works. You know, the way the world really works is thanks for coming, the way the world really works is Life isn't neatly in little packages. When you go out and create rebellions, it everybody, it's called collateral damage, we talk about in the military, right? Collateral damage, that's the reality of life. You know, you don't get to say, okay, it's going to stop right here, you're going to be okay. It's going to stop right there, you're going to be okay. It's, that's not the way the world works. When you rebel, when you fight, when you take matters into your own hands then everybody in your community, everybody in your family ends up suffering as well. And it's part of the lesson of of how messy life is. Life is messy. It's never clean and simple. And you can see what's going on in our communities today, this week, how horrible it is, and how many people are dying as a result of the spillover of um, what's happening in our minority communities.